Hello, everyone. Welcome, and thanks for joining us on The Health Briefs, the monthly podcast that gives you insights on current health issues that matter to you. I'm Sofia Garcia, a third-year PhD candidate in the Health Policy Program at McMaster University. I am joined by some of the best and smartest academics, policymakers, and key stakeholders. Our goal is to give you a breakdown of the latest health news in health policy, health economics, and all things health. Thanks for tuning in to this month's podcast in which we will talk about Indigenous health and research. Shortly, we will have an expert joining us who is a renowned Canadian researcher in the area, Dr. Jennifer Walker. But before we do, let me tell you a little about why we are discussing Indigenous health today. Joining me in the first half of this podcast today is Tuba Fatima, a master's student in public health. Tuba is the producer and editor of our show. Hi, Tuba. Great to have you on the show today telling us about Indigenous health. Hi, Sophia. I'm glad to be here. I'm excited. So let's get started. So what are we going to be talking about today? So today, we are going to talk about who Indigenous peoples are, their health status, determinants of health, and give an overlay of policies that affect their health. I must say at this point that we are no experts in Indigenous health. We did research, and we worked with Winona Smoke, who is a friend, an Indigenous person, and a working professional currently at Employment and Social Development Canada. Hi, Winona, if you're listening to this. So, Tuba, who are Indigenous peoples? Well, Sophia, and to everyone listening, Indigenous peoples in Canada are people who first lived in North America prior to colonization. Indigenous peoples in Canada are categorized broadly into three main groups, the First Nations, Métis, and Inuit. First Nations peoples are those peoples who historically lived in North America, from the Atlantic to the Pacific and below the Arctic. The Métis descend from the historical joining of First Nations members and Europeans. The descendants of these marriages form their own culture and nation prior to colonization and the creation of Canada. The Inuit historically lived along the coastal edge and on the islands of Canada's far north. It is important to remember that First Nations, Métis, and Inuit each have their own culture, based largely on the environment that they traditionally inhabited. It's also important to say at this time that the language we use is very important. When settlers first came to North America, they mistakenly thought that they were in the Indies. As such, they incorrectly referred to Indigenous peoples as Indians. This term is not only incorrect, but it also has ties to painful colonial legacies such as the Indian residential school system. For these reasons, it is no longer acceptable to refer to Indigenous peoples in Canada as Indians. The term Indian continues to be used in legal context with respect to the Indian Act and Indian Register. There are many terms for Indigenous peoples in Canada, such as Indigenous, Aboriginal, and First Peoples. It is okay to be unsure of how to refer to Indigenous peoples in Canada, but as a recurrent rule of thumb in Canada, Indigenous is an acceptable term to use as it refers to a group of people who have long been connected to their ancestral lands. Whenever possible, though, it's important to refer to distinct groups by their names, such as Haudenosaunee and Anishinaabe. So let's now talk about the health status of the Indigenous population. Indigenous peoples have lower health outcomes in comparison to non-Indigenous Canadians. This is a fact. The population has high rates of infant mortality, maternal morbidity, diabetes, malnutrition rates, and a disproportionately high infectious disease burden. Mental health is also a concern in Indigenous populations. Suicide rates among children and youth are at epidemic levels. In some communities, youth suicides occur at a rate that is nearly 800 times the national average. That is incredibly high. Why this disproportionate high burden of disease in the population? 
Well, to understand that, we first need to talk about determinants of health. These are the social, economic, and political factors that influence health, known broadly as the socioeconomic factors. Well, one key determinant of Indigenous health is poverty. Many Indigenous peoples are living in relative and absolute poverty, partly because of low education and income levels. This is likely related to underfunding on reserves and institutional racism. Another determinant is housing. Many Indigenous peoples are living in poor quality housing that is overcrowded, which as you can imagine is quite problematic for the spread of infectious diseases. Furthering this problem is water contamination on reserves. In 2019, sorry, in 2018, only about 9% of Six Nations residents had clean drinking water. Violence against women is also another huge determinant of health in Indigenous populations. Yeah, so in Canada, statistics show that Indigenous women and girls are 12 times more likely to be murdered or missing than any other woman in Canada. This is one issue that is being addressed by the federal government, but in my opinion, much more work can be done. Most importantly, we can't talk about the determinants of Indigenous health without talking about colonization. Colonization has brought about many changes to the lives of Indigenous populations as many groups are relocated to remote and isolated areas and provided with little access to comprehensive medical care. Colonization has also generated historical trauma that has produced both negative physical and mental health outcomes. Rural health services and its challenges also influence the health of Indigenous populations. Low access to healthcare in rural areas can be attributed to both lack of services and the limited ability to travel to these services. A shortage of rural physicians has been at the forefront of healthcare policy for several years. Although the government aimed to address this by increasing funding for rural physicians, it continues to be a challenge because of a shortage of professionals that are trained in Indigenous well-being, because of increased stress and pressure faced by physicians living in rural areas, limited opportunities for training, and lack of employment opportunities for partners and education opportunities for children. This makes it difficult for rural physicians to practice in those settings for a long period of time. So to conclude our very brief overview about Indigenous health determinants, it is imperative to add that health is also a result of positive determinants. Indigenous populations are resilient. They strive for wellness and a holistic lifestyle which balances spiritual, physical, mental, and emotional well-being. This also has shown to have positive impacts on their health. What I learned from Dr. Walker is that we shouldn't only focus on deter- negative determinants when studying health, but also the positive determinants. So thank you for sharing, Tuba. I would now like to switch the conversation a bit to talk about policies. As a lot of us already know, Indigenous health policies fall mainly under the federal jurisdiction and Indigenous governments. It is patchy, however. There are arguments commonly between provinces and territories and the federal government on the jurisdictional responsibility of healthcare services for Indigenous peoples. The length of time it takes to come to a decision has resulted in little to no care for some First Nations and Inuit peoples. The most known example of the negative effects of these disputes is the case of Jordan River Anderson. You must have heard it in the news. Jordan was a First Nations boy who only ever lived in hospital until his death at the age of five. As the province of Manitoba and the federal government spent years arguing over who would fund the child's home care, home-based care. This led to the Jordan's principle. It is a child-first principle that says that the government agency of first contact has to pay for care, and then they will get reimbursed for it later. 
But overall, for those who are non-status First Nation, Métis, and Inuit who are not registered under land claim agreements, healthcare is provided through national insurance that you and I have, Sophia, and is administered by provinces. So in Ontario, that would be OHIP. For those First Nations living on reserve and the Inuit, the Federal First Nations and Inuit Health Branch finances and administers um, health services through the non-insured health benefit plan. The Métis, however, are not covered for the additional health services provided by the federal government. This is a huge gap in healthcare access for this group. The Métis are currently fighting to receive the same access as they too are the founding peoples of Canada. Wanting more self-determination, Indigenous communities have fought hard for many years to transfer the responsibility of on-reserve care to communities. This has shown to be associated with reductions in negative health outcomes, such as suicide, because it allows for culturally relevant care. Absolutely. Providing complementary, culturally relevant care has shown to be advantageous numerous times. The Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada released a report in 2015 that includes 94 calls to action if reconciliation is to be reached. Of these, seven are dedicated towards health. We highly encourage you to read these. In brief, these include establishing measurable goals to identify and close gaps in health outcomes, Acknowledging that the current state of health of Indigenous people is direct and is a direct result of previous policies, addressing the distinct health needs of the Métis, Inuit, and off-reserve Aboriginal peoples, providing sustainable funding for existing and new Aboriginal healing centres, recognizing uh, the value of Indigenous healing practices and using them in treatment in collaboration with Indigenous healers and elders where requested by Aboriginal patients, increasing the number of Indigenous professionals working in the healthcare field, providing cultural competency training for all healthcare professionals, and lastly, requiring all medical and nursing students to take at least one course on Indigenous health issues. Well, folks, that's all we have for today. Hopefully, everyone listening has a better understanding of Indigenous health. We would now like to introduce our speaker for today to further our discussion. Thank you, Dr. Jennifer Walker, for being with us here today. Uh, We're so happy to have you and talk to us about Indigenous health, Indigenous research. Um, Dr. Jennifer Walker is from Laurentian University and she's here at McMaster University for the LaBelle Lecture, um, which we're having um, in just an hour. And she has kindly offered to speak with us and share her experiences with us, as well as um, tell us a bit more about Indigenous health today. So, Dr. Jennifer Walker, welcome to our show. Thank you for having me. We're so glad. So I'm just going to walk you through some questions um, and feel free to answer directly, indirectly. We just want a chance to speak to you on our podcast. Um, So to begin with, can you tell us briefly about um, health and inequity in health status in Indigenous populations and the barriers that they face when accessing health care? And we know that colonization is a huge barrier, so we would love if you can speak about that as well in your answer. Okay. So thank you. And it is really nice to be here. I'm excited to share a little bit. Um, And uh, so, you know, I think colonization is a place to start when we're talking about the sort of what underlies that um, inequity in health status and inequity in access to healthcare. So if we think about the disruptions to land systems, food systems, language, indigenous governance systems, that that like really substantial disruption has also um, resulted in substantial and persistent and intergenerational health inequities. 
So though that translates into higher mortality rates and associated, um, you know, chronic conditions and um, injury rates and things like that. So a lot of that is stuff I look at. But at the same time, like um, there's a lot of strength and resiliency and and a con- conceptualization of health that's holistic. Um, and so some of the work that I've I've been doing alongside elders and and with community members who are talking about like um, aging and aging well it's not just about counting chronic conditions or looking at trajectories of of you know decline in health status but also taking into account that holistic picture and and really um, trying to think about positive framings of health too and the overall balance so maybe physical health is declining but maybe spiritual health is increasing so those kinds of things i think is are are really important concepts so often you know you hear things about the gap in health status or closing a gap but i think when we think about that gap we have to think about what actually are we moving towards and if we're moving towards um health in from indigenous perspectives it might we might have to follow a different path than moving towards, you know, just making sure that health status is the same as other people. Do you know what I mean? So health health inequities and health status is is actually complex when you think about it from Indigenous perspectives. So for sure there's inequity and for sure that um, roots in colonization. Um, and I think, but I think most of the time when we're working in research and working together, people are trying to also find those positive pathways to, to get to better health. And we were talking about indigenous group as a whole, um, but obviously indigenous people are not a homogeneous group. So how do you address heterogeneity between indigenous peoples in your work, um, in research, in um, policy? For example, how could that be addressed? It's a really important question, um, and it's a really important consideration in all um, of, of, our, of our work because um, we talk about... Um, like in Canada, there's three sort of constitutionally recognized groups, which are First Nations, Inuit, and Métis. But there's heterogeneity, a lot of heterogeneity within that. So um, my um, family background is um, both settler and Haudenosaunee, but I live in Anishinaabe territory and work mostly, well, I work you know, with communities across Ontario. They may be Cree, they may be Haudenosaunee, they may be um, Anishinaabe. And... Um, and it's different working with different groups. So understanding that and understanding that the traditional governance structures and many of the teachings um, coming from uh, from those from different traditions will mean that the work has to be done differently mm-hmm. among First Nations. But there is some collective governance and some collectivity among First Nations. Whereas, you know, when we think about Métis and um, and First Nations, there's really not mechanisms for collective governance in the same way from from my perspective. So I think that when, um, so we actually, like when we're talking about policy and research, they actually have to be quite different. It's rare that um, people would want to, to sort of say, let's have an Indigenous research project mm-hmm. that comes from community because community would rather... Uh, generally rather uh, very specific approaches and specific research questions and policies. What are some policies that are in place? Do they address Indigenous people as a whole or do they look at certain communities? Yeah, so 
So there's parallel policy processes, right? Mm -hmm. So um, if we're talking about policy from like a provincial or um, federal kind of policy lens, often it's like indigenous policy, Mm -hmm. or sometimes it's actually excludes some groups, um, you know, people who don't have status, uh, who aren't registered with the federal government, or people who are Métis, you know, there's like a policy landscape, I think, more than just like Indigenous policy, mm-hmm. for sure. Um, and it's, uh, it's, it's multi-jurisdictional, it's, it's complex. But then there's also parallel, um, you know, like First Nation policy processes, you know, and, and a whole structure for establishing First Nation responses to, to health concerns or health issues. So I think that, um, we have to think about the fact that many of the policies that are in place that are imposed um, are actually keeping people in states of ill health and that disrupting that the imposed policies is, is something that we have to we have to move towards and that the development of new policies have to acknowledge the sovereignty of indigenous nations. Because if they don't acknowledge that, if they sort of say, okay, you're, you're sort of an, a special interest group that we're going to take into consideration as we develop this policy about you, then that's actually um, the, same, the same old, same old, right? Mm-hmm. That's been done for hundreds of years. And really what needs to happen is sort of this um, respecting um, the, you know, the, the principles put forward in the United Nations mm-hmm. Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples to say that you know, this sort of self-determination is actually operationalized and that we have uh, agreements and, and policies that are, are um, that respect that sovereignty. And how do your experiences, you mentioned that you um, are Haudenosaunee person, how does that influence the work that you do? Well, I think, you know, when I went to university, mm-hmm. I actually um, was, uh, I, so I did health studies uh, at Waterloo. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the first thing I did. And then I went out to Calgary and did epidemiology. And I knew that um, I, I couldn't find the connections when I was a student. Couldn't find those connections. So I w- felt like I had two different paths at that point. And I, so I developed my epi skills, but I didn't quite know how to intersect that with my identity as a, as a Haudenosaunee person or um, connect it to that, to being able to um, fulfill my responsibilities mm-hmm. to my family, my community, to um, other Indigenous nations in Ontario and across Canada. Like it was really hard for me to find those um, intersections. But now, um, over years of sort of work and practice, I think... Um, it's it's more clear to me how important um, data and mm-hmm. epidemiology approaches are for communities, and so my um, identity actually helps me to be an ally to indig- indigenous nations that I'm not a part of, and to serve the, my my own nation. So your background epidemiology mm-hmm. and you do work with communities, yeah. like participatory research, we call mm-hmm. that. And that often is qualitative work. Right. So how do you combine the two? Yeah, so work? that's a really, so that was kind of part of that journey is trying to figure out how do how do we apply the what we typically think of as indigenous, you know, indigenous theoretical frameworks and indigenous methodologies and um, very sort of 
almost, I would say that when I did my epidemiology training, it was sort of like a theoretical. We hardly talked about theory. We just kind of took it all for granted. We didn't explore a lot, I think, in terms of theory. And so I think very practically what it has meant is that um, the, the questions that come, so unlike many researchers, I rarely come up with my own research questions. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I maybe help a community refine their research questions, but they're rarely like, you know, my research questions. So that's that's part of how how it's how it's done is that so like even though my background is really in aging, aging research and health services research, most of the the work much of the work I do is still around aging, but a lot of it a lot of the work is what comes from communities. So I've done projects um, for communities around diabetes, around HIV, around hepatitis C, mm -hmm. around, um, you know, a wide range of cancer, you know, different things that I don't actually have like any, any particular clinical knowledge of, yeah. but it's facilitating that process of getting that information so that, um, so that communities have what they need. So I think it's very, it's very practically, you know, when, when we're doing the analysis for those things, having community involvement in deciding which variables to look at, how to frame the results, how to do the analysis. Are mm -hmm. we modeling positive outcomes or negative outcomes? Mm -hmm. You know, trying to take strengths-based approaches as, as much as possible so that we're not just continuing to sh shed light on negative things, mm -hmm. but we're actually, um, it's rather than like a spotlight, we're trying to use a flashlight, yeah. you know, like so that we can see the path forward. Mm -hmm. And seeing where things are bad doesn't really help us find the next step towards healing and towards better health. So really trying to take those strengths-based approaches, work with um, community partners on, on the important questions in the ways that they want to ask the questions and analyze the data. And then also sharing that back in ways that are, are appropriate. Um, so sometimes that means I don't get um, the same kinds of, uh, you know, I don't, I don't prioritize the same kinds of research outputs that maybe some other, other people might, um, but definitely prioritizing that um, community uh, and, and having, using data to strengthen sovereignty um, among nations so that it's, you know, people can use the data for governance, mm -hmm. you know, for, the data are for First Nations. If I'm doing a First Nations project, the data are first for First Nations and then for research. And do you collect your own data or do you use like existing data and do secondary data analysis? So I work on a variety of different yeah. projects. So sometimes it's collecting, um, you know, primary data collection, doing new things. Um, and But very often it's accessing data that have been collected already. So, for example, um, one of the big sources of data is the um, at ICES. Mm -hmm. So it's health services. Um, it's data that are collected through um, interactions with the healthcare system. And so, um, you know, if people go to the hospital or to the doctor, then a healthcare record is stored in databases and all those can be linked. So a lot of the work has come from what the, you know, um, for example, the Chiefs of Ontario um, brought the Indian Register, that federal Indian Register, that list of people who, who are registered First Nations people in Canada to ICES and we linked it. 
So now that unlocked the data and we can say, okay, so now for First Nations, what are the diabetes rates? For First Nations, what are the cancer rates? And that um, that's one big source. Um, other places where uh, where I've accessed data is through the First Nations Regional Health Survey. So the First Nations Regional Health Survey is is um, collected. Uh, well, it's it's like a First Nations owned, administered, and controlled. Uh, the data are controlled um, through First Nations governance. And so um, I've worked quite a bit with the Regional Health Survey data to be able to answer questions as well. And then you know other other data sources. So it's sort of like I think that's um, that's where we really need to build our capacity as First yeah. Nations is using those data sources to be able to inform our own communities, to be able to um, both advocate, but also make decisions and use the data for governance. And what has been your experience working with a community who may not know about the, like data and research? Yeah, so um, there's a lot, like a huge range of, experiences um and like comfort with um with that kind of research uh across communities so um some are some of my experiences have been really like i can't even keep up with all the questions that people have and and want answered using the data Mm -hmm. and then um in other cases there's been just such negative experiences with research in individuals' lifetimes in their communities, that there's just there's no there's no trust, right? And and it, it takes a long time to build that connection and build a level of trust. And like rarely at this point am I ever sort of going and saying, I'd like to do this project, what do you think? Mm-hmm. So if someone is uh, uncomfortable, then it's just a matter of like so I'm not going and asking because mostly most of the questions are coming. Yeah. Um, so, but what I do do <laughs> is um, try and help people know that these data are there if they want to ask questions and use them. So if if someone is sort of like uncomfortable about the fact that these data even exist about them, um, then it's just a matter of a lot of um, exploration, conversation, trust building, but it's it's not taken for granted, you know, and it doesn't matter that. I'm Haudenosaunee. Mm-hmm. It matters that I'm sitting in a university and I'm a researcher. So it's not. Uh, it's it, sometimes it's it's not easy conversations for sure. Um, and a question that I had, and a lot of students have, um, is given that Indigenous health is relatively understudied, um, a lot of people are gravitating towards working in that area, or they want to work with Indigenous populations. So how can non-Indigenous researchers um, begin with approaching and getting involved in Indigenous research? So I think that there's a, a really, I, I agree, there's a lot of uh, a lot of interest and people, this is a common question, what you're asking is a common question. Um, and I think that there's a few things I think people might need to reflect on. One is like coming to this with a posture of humility, right? And coming... Um, with an interest and an openness to challenge your own self and your own understanding of what um, of, of what you think you're bringing to that relationship, right? So I think, you know, a lot of people c- come into those situations wanting to help. Like, I just want to help people. I see that something's bad and I want to help. But 
if you come with a posture of I want to be a helper, mm -hmm. it's different than wanting to help, right? Because help wanting to help imposes what you think is right, but wanting to be a helper is to say, I acknowledge your sovereignty, mm -hmm. I acknowledge your um, strength, and um, I want to be that person who gets the rocks out of the way so that the river can flow, right? Rather than um, rather than, you know, try to redirect the river, you mm -hmm. know what I mean? So um, I think it's, it's a really, it's that humility, that self-awareness, it's very, very important and not coming with what you think are solutions. So, and some people say, well, I don't even know how to, like often, too often people develop proposals and then go, and that's mm -hmm. the wrong way to do it, right? So being in common spaces, like, um, so at Laurentian, for example, I often encourage people to like, there's lots of things going on. Just participate, just be in the same spaces and learn and listen and, you know, build relationships first before you come with ideas. So lastly, I just want to ask about your experience, your overall experience, um, of being and working in this area. Um, as a last question, like what? What do you enjoy about mm. what you do? So I love, um, I really love learning. Like I, I, and I love working with students. So in my job, I, um, I do both teaching and uh, research. So I enjoy both of those. Um, I love working with students. I love accompanying them as they learn. But I also really love being um, with people in in communities um, and as seeing that that impact um, that it has and the potential impact that that it has on um, hopefully on health in the long run um, I do find some some things uh, a little challenging right like there's so few indigenous people who have like a knowledge of epidemiology so it's really important and I know there are people working really hard to build capacity and to um, make sure we're um, supporting uh, supporting Indigenous students to choose those paths um, and and to reinforce that sort of like an integrated understanding of data and um, Indigenous knowledge so that we can um, have more people who are doing um, doing this kind of work mm -hmm. so I I enjoy accompanying people on that path I I'm not but I I really hope that um I really hope that in the future uh there'll be more of us so that it's it's like we can have multiple multiple yeah. perspectives yeah definitely and with I don't know with growing data I imagine that it's a there's a lot and yeah. um there's a lot of work to be done still in the area like yeah, we can't be left behind. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much for uh, being here, Dr. Deborah Walker. Um, we're so happy that you were able to share your experiences and your insights with us. Um, thank you from the bottom of our heart. Yeah, thank you for having me. Yeah. And thank you to our listeners for joining us today. We hope you learned something new and will continue the conversation about Indigenous health with your friends, colleagues, and family. You can also join the conversation on Twitter by following our account at The Health Briefs. This project is funded and supported by the McMaster University School of Graduate Studies through its Spices program. This podcast is produced, written, recorded, and edited by me, Sophia, and Tupa Fatima. 
This episode was written in collaboration with Winona Smoke.